Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. General Vagon called the Battle of France in over. I expected the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. So, for those of you who came onto this episode thinking Eagle Day had something to do with an American thing, uh, I think we've probably changed your mind a little bit with the opening speech. Um, for all you British people, um, I'm pretty sure you're the same as me, and you still get goosebumps at the sound of Winston Churchill's voice. Um, and welcome to another episode of This Week in History. 
Um, we are joined again uh, for this episode. This is a fantastic episode that, well, it's known as the, the 13 Hours That Saved Britain. It's one of the most famous, iconic parts of British history. Uh, we still have the the Battle of Britain memorial flights, uh, the Spitfires, Hurricanes, Lancasters. It, it was, well, for everyone British, you know the story or you've heard the story of the Battle of Britain, but how many people actually know what happened on that day or what happened during that month that we were constantly bombarded by the greatest enemy Britain had ever seen and with smaller numbers and very little hope at some point managed to to well like uh, good old Sir Winston says there um, save the world from tyranny basically so welcome to the show dads I don't think you need a huge amount of an introduction anymore so um, welcome back Thank you. And uh, yeah, this one, fantastic. I, I said I, I was talking earlier, I said I wanted to do an episode on the Battle of Britain before we did this one, because this one is like um, the conclusion almost of the Battle of Britain, isn't it? Um, unfortunately, no matter how much you look into the Battle of Britain, it centres around Eagle Day. So you'd have got maybe a five minute episode of me telling you a little bit about the Battle of Britain, and I'm pretty sure you're going to have covered most of that in this anyway so we shall uh i'll leave it over to you okay so what are we going to be talking about we are today talking about uh as you've said eagle day um the german version adlertag and it was in august 1940 Mm-hmm. Okay, so there are very, very few people who have any interest in history who don't know about the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Okay. Now I know that you're going to cover this in a different episode, but this podcast is about the 13 hours that Britain came closest to losing the war. Yeah. Yeah, it's very touch and go, wasn't it? It was very, very touch and go. There is another episode coming up sometime this year on the Battle of the Atlantic, which if we'd have lost this and the Battle of the Atlantic, we'd have ended up, that would have been it. Yeah. Okay. But this is um, the closest. There was a lot of things like that, though. I mean, I did the episode a couple of years ago about the Bismarck, and it was pretty much said that had we not have sunk that ship, it would have kept the channel, it would have stopped the Merchant Navy getting through, and... There was a. They had so many opportunities to destroy Britain and never really took it. Never, never really took it. Well, not never really. They mm. didn't take it, did they? No. But um, like I said, it's called Eagle Day. Now, in actual fact, there are two Eagle Days. The first is Adlertag, which is the German one, and that occurred on the thirteenth of August, nineteen forty. Okay. Okay. And that's when the Luftwaffe began its assault on Fighter Command. And it was officially the start of the Battle of Britain. Eagle Day for Great Britain was later on in the battle and is now commemorated as Battle of Britain Day. And this is on the 15th of September. And that's what this podcast is about. Yeah, it's not about the month before. Not about the month before. It's about... Uh, the day okay so we do a little bit of backtrack all right because you haven't covered great the battle of britain yet so i'll give you a no. little bit of a 
Well, like I said, I, I was going to, but I mean, like I said, the, what you're going to cover in this little bit of background is probably all you'd manage to get. Okay. Because all of the information is about this day. Yeah. So Germany, under Adolf Hitler, had rolled through Europe and through France. France had surrendered. The rescue of a substantial number of Brit- the British expeditionary force had occurred by the 4th of June 1940, and it had been successful. That was what we did, Dunkirk. Yep. And as Churchill has just said, the battle for France is over. The Battle of Britain has begun. Yeah. Now, after Dunkirk, Germany did actually invade part of the UK, part of Great Britain. On the 30th of June 1940, the German forces attacked and occupied the Channel Islands. And they remained there until the end of the war, 9th of May 1945. So they did invade Great Britain. They did take over part of Britain. It was the Channel Islands. They are closer to France than they are Britain, but they are British. Yeah, it's like saying you took Gibraltar. It's not really, we're not that bothered about it. (laughs) Um, And it was a very, very big propaganda coup for the Germans, and they made full use of it. So all that remained was Great Britain. The whole of Europe was under Nazi control. Yeah. And the Russians at this time were allied mm. as well. So. so in order to succeed in the war, Germany needed air superiority. And it was now the RAF versus the Luftwaffe. If the RAF failed to hold back the onslaught, Hitler would have crossed the English Channel and been in London within a week. We had nothing to stop him. No. Okay. I mean, you've got to be under no doubt Britain was on its own. Mm. Europe had been defeated. The United States could see no reason to get involved in a European war. Russia had a non-aggression agreement with Germany. You know, we were alone. France made use of their classic flag, which is a white cross on a white background. <laughs> I think the French might have something to say about that. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, as a country, we still had a navy. We still had an air force. We still had soldiers. But nearly all of Britain's military equipment had been left on the beaches of France. Uh, Hitler didn't want to fight Britain. No, he said that from the start. His intention was to force Britain into surrendering or withdrawing from any aggression. In other words, make Britain neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Invasion was going to be the last resort. Hitler wanted to batter Britain into surrender without committing any ground forces because he knew that to invade and defeat this small wet island off of the west coast of Europe isn't going to be easy. No. All right. In fact... Britain hadn't been beaten on home soil ever as a country, Britain. England, on the other hand, had lost a battle 900-odd years before. That was the The Norman invasion Battle of Hastings, 1066. So Hitler's task wasn't going to be an easy one. Yeah. It certainly, you know... I mean, the Royal Navy could effectively stop any invasion fleet from entering the English Channel. And with the Royal Navy protecting the British ships, an invasion would have been impossible. Yeah. 
and that's why Germany started Operation Sea Lion, which was the invasion. But the first thing that Germany had to do was stop to the area. get air superiority over the channel. Yeah. That way, the RAF could not defend the Royal Navy, and Germany would have basically a free hand of going across the channel. Yeah, because they they had air superiority. Their bombers could take out the Navy. Yeah. So. so, obviously, the first thing Germany needed was air superiority over the channel. This meant the Luftwaffe had to defeat the RAF over Britain. And in particular, the RAF fighter force. Yes. We had, we had the bombers and the fighter force. The fighter force was known as Fighter Command. Mm-hmm. Now, Hermann Goring was the World War I fighter ace. He was head of the German Air Force. And he told Adolf Hitler that he could defeat the RAF in less than 28 days. And to be honest, that's not an idle boast. You know, he genuinely believed that. And from all the information about the British capabilities, that was a fact. Yeah. I mean, you know, it it was a fact that everything that the Germans knew pointed to this country being short of planes and pilots. Hmm. And there was a number of reasons for that. So during the defense of France... So while Germany was rolling through France, Britain only sent a few squadrons over to help the French. These were equipped with older aircraft. And to be honest, they got their asses kicked. Uh, They were easily defeated. And that led the Germans to believe that the RAF only had a few top-class fighter aircraft. So... What did they send over? Swordfish? They sent over um, <laughs> swordfish, gladiators, um, one or two hurricanes. Yeah. Uh, Bolt and Pool Defiance. So, yeah, the, the, the worst of The Blenheims, Bristol Blenheims, and, and a few, but nothing. Sort of, yeah. So Germany believed that because that was what they were facing in France, that's what they were going to face in Britain. Yeah. Actually... Britain Britain very, very quickly realised that France was lost. So they kept the better planes and pilots back for the defence of this island. But it reinforced the Germans' assumption. Their spies were not very good. We have an English Channel, 22 miles of water between us and Europe. It's very difficult for spies to get information across. Yeah. Yeah, radio signals could be jammed. So you had to be in person, and, you know, it it, it was difficult. Now, for the same reasons, very few missions were flown over the breaches of Dunkirk. So when the British Expeditionary Force were retreating out of Dunkirk, the RAF only sent over old aircraft. Yeah. And not many of them. And much to the disgust of some of the soldiers on Dunkirk beaches, they complained, where's the bloody RAF? Because we knew that it was lost. Yeah. We're not going to throw the best at a lost cause. No, but had they have failed in that Dunkirk mission, we wouldn't have had a bloody army. No. That, that is <laughs> the entire army true. was there. <laughs> so... 
The battle for the skies over Britain began in August 1940, and at the start of it, Hermann Goring, like I said, believed that attacks by air alone could defeat Britain, and told Hitler himself that the Luftwaffe would sweep the RAF from the skies as they had done the Polish and French air forces. Yeah. The German air force began attacking airfields and any aircraft they could find, and they conducted things called free hunts. This involved large numbers of, of fighter planes, and fighter planes only, 100 to 150 flying over southern England to draw out and engage the RAF. Now, fighters aren't a problem. Not really, no. Bombers are the problem. Yeah, because fighters don't so attack the So there was a standing order at that time, early 19, uh, August 1940, that there was a standing order sent out to all British airfields that German fighter aircraft were not to be taken on unless they were escorting bombers. Mm. Again, this leads to a myth forming against uh, amongst German pilots that the RAF didn't have any aircraft. They're flying their fighters over Britain and nothing's coming up to meet them. Yeah, well, you can get, you can understand why they were thinking that. So they're going back and going, well, nobody came up to we we got free reign over yeah. here. Yeah, so the truth is somewhat different. On the first day of the battle for air superiority over England, as generally considered to be the tenth of August, the RAF had six hundred and forty serviceable aircraft. Now, not all of them are going to be top of the range. Spitfires and Hurricanes. There's yeah. going to be other aircraft in that. German forces had 2,600. <laughs> Just a few more. Then. Yeah. So it's 2,600 over 640. So despite the numerical advantage the Germans had, Britain wasn't unprepared. The RAF commander at the time, a gentleman called Air Chief Marshal, Marshal Hugh Dowding, had organised the air defence of Britain some years before. And... I'll give you a little bit on it. I mean, you'll probably go through it a bit more when you do the Battle of Britain, mm. all right? Well, Dowding split Britain into four areas, and they were called groups. They were numbered 10, 11, 12, and 13. Each group had its own individual areas and individual issues. So 10 group covered the southwest of England, 12 group covered the Midlands, 13 group covered the north of Scotland, and 11 group covered the southeast of England, including London. And this is where the brunt of the assaults were going to come from the Germans. Yeah. It was going to be the main area of the battle. But we only had 19 airfields in 11 group to cover the whole of the southeast of England. So you're talking 5,000 square miles-ish, 19 airfields. It's not a lot, is it? No. Okay. From... Uh, one some of the other groups i mean from 12 group you could call in the southern couple of airfields that were in the bottom of 12 group that could cover yeah. the northern part of southeast england but they wouldn't make london no they'd run out of fuel before they got there so in total throughout the whole of the battle there were only 25 squadrons based in 11 group and they had between 8 and 18 aircraft each so we're talking numbers here. Yeah, it's not a lot. Not all of them were available at the same time, 
And some of those were night fighters. Hmm. Some of them were coastal fighters, coastal reconnaissance aircraft. So you're only talking there somewhere between the 200 to 300 mark. Yeah. Of... Uh, yeah. In short, there were very few aircraft to stop the expected German onslaught. But, and the big but is, there were still far more than the Germans were aware of. Yes. And we had radar. Radio detection and ranging is what it stands for. Now, prior to the war, both Germany and Britain were developing a system of radar. Neither knew how much progress the other one had made because the war got in the way. But at the time of the battle, Britain was the one that held the advantage. Now, forget everything you know about radar. In 1940, it was nothing like you would imagine. There was no rotating screen with individual dots. In fact, what it was was a very small uh, six-inch screen, probably six inches high by about 12 inches long. Mm. That's it, rectangle. Very, very small vertical lines would be rising and falling. That's all it was. And a well-trained operator could interpret this visual display. And I suppose it looked much like a fast-moving modern oscilloscope. Heart monitor thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very primitive by today's standard, but the system could pick up German aircraft in the air over France. It could give an approximate number of planes. All right, it wasn't very accurate as to their altitude, and it couldn't tell the type of aircraft, or whether they were British, French, German, or whatever. But it did have a range of up to 90 miles. So this enabled Fighter Command to see German aircraft assembling at the aerial rendezvous points over France. And it totally eliminated the chance of a surprise attack. Yeah. Germany did not know this. They did not realise how good radar was and the fact that we relied on it. In short, we knew they were coming and we had between 20 and 30 minutes notice before they started to cross the channel. Once the German planes made ra- made the British coast, radar was totally ineffective and it, it had no, no purpose. You couldn't tell the difference between British aircraft and German aircraft and it, or and anything else. So mm. it, wasn't, it was totally useless after that. So we then relied on the Observer Corps. Basically, they were people with binoculars counting the German aircraft, working out how high they are, and telephoning it through to the Battle Command Centre at RAF Uxbridge. Okay. That's the Observer Corps. It seems like a real simple thing, but that would have been really important. Very. Yeah. Um, The strength and potential targets of this German attack was determined uh, at RAF Uxbridge. And the information was sent to Fighter Command, who contacted the individual airfields. These were then called by telephone. Yeah. And they'd take the message. They then called the dispatch area. That's not quite what you'd expect. The dispatch receiver telephone was frequently in a tent in a field surrounded by a dozen or so pilots, all sitting in chairs, hammocks, tents and all close to their aircraft. 
You've got a telephone in a field. Yeah, I've seen, you've seen videos of it and things like that, and then they just all run. The lucky ones might have had a small room to sleep in, but they were always, the pilots were always within running distance of their aircraft. Yeah. And their aircraft were not parked in a line. No. You park the aircraft in a line, you've got an aircraft coming over the top, ba 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 takes out the line. Oh, yeah, that makes so sense. So they parked them at Stands. various stages. So, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> makes sense. The Observer Corps were an essential part of Britain's early warning system. And even if they couldn't be seen, they could work out a rough estimate by hearing. Mm. It's very cloudy in England. It can be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, Germany, to be honest, failed to realise how important radar was to the British defence system. And they didn't attack the radar stations as much as they should have well they did attack them yes but they didn't attack them like with any had they have known how useful they were they probably would have so they initially concentrated on attacking british airfields and had they continued to attack fighter command airfields british fighter aircraft would have been destroyed on the ground um or if they were airborne they would have had nowhere to land under these circumstances we would have been defeated that there'd have been no no doubt about that. Mm. Unfortunately, the Germans' intelligence was limited, so they also attacked airfields that weren't used. Those that were used for coastal rescue aircraft, those that were used for night fighters and bomber airfields. If they'd have concentrated on the few fighter aircraft, fighter airfields that we had, again, we would have lost. Hmm. I suppose they just saw an airfield and went for it rather than... Near enough, yeah. Yeah. So the German tactic of attacking airfields and radar stations was working, and it probably would have succeeded, yeah, if they'd have kept it up. But on the night of the 24th, 25th of August, a couple of German bombers got lost, and they ditched their bombs. Mm. They ditched them over London. Contrary to Adolf Hitler's, you will not bomb London. Now, Churchill responded, and typical British, you've had a go at me, I'm going to kick shit out of you. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. So, Bomber Command launches a retaliatory strike on Berlin the next night, so the 25th to the 26th of August. The damage to berlin was very very slight but the bomber raid infuriated hitler so much and greatly embarrassed hermann goring who actually had said no german no bomber will ever bomb berlin yeah I remember, yeah that was a famous yeah. speech he said to hitler yeah. wasn't it they will never never bomb berlin they'll never get here yeah and they did <laughs> think it went along the lines of if a, if a bomb ever lands on berlin you can call me herman i think this is what the the thing was the quote was um anyway hitler decided he'd ha that was not going to happen and he ordered the luftwaffe to concentrate on london so they then shifted from airfields to london yeah in the hope that they're going to demoralize the civilian uh, yeah. population the civilian population would rise up and say we've had enough of this war surrender 
or stop fighting and or anything else. That was what he wanted, and that's what he was going to do. All right. If a German intelligence was to believe fighter command was down to its last reserves anyway, and an attack on the capital will draw out the last few fighters into a big battle, and the RAF would be defeated. Mm-hmm. Now this change in strategy provided fighter command with a much needed rest and it allowed the badly damaged airfields to be repaired new aircraft to be delivered and pilot loss to be replenished but pilot loss still remained a big problem now given that an individual pilot could be called on to fly up to eight sorties a day we call sorties i don't know if they call them in america but they're they're missions yeah yeah flights whatever they were all all the british pilots were tired exhausted to be honest new pilots didn't last long the life expectancy of a new pilot straight out of training was around 80 hours mm. under two weeks yeah um yeah it's not it wasn't a long and quite a few never ever returned from their first outing now although fighting over home soil each squadron used a separate radio frequency and each radio had a limited range of around 250 miles. The aircraft had a range of 250 miles. So basically, the British fighters could only stay in the air for an hour. The ammunition that they carried, they had eight 303 machine guns, four in each yeah. wing. Those were the fighters they would last between 10 and 20 seconds. Huh. That's it. Yeah, they were. They had to be really careful with their ammunition, didn't they? Yeah. So, British fighter aircraft were constantly having to return to base for refueling and rearming. Radar defences gave the British enough time to get the fighters in the air and, ex- and intercept the bombers, but it was close. It took a German aircraft 20 minutes to cross the channel. It took one minute to get information from radar control, then out to the fields. It then took 15 minutes to get the aircraft to their aircraft and airborne and climb to an attack altitude, leaving four minutes for the RAF to locate the enemy before they made it over British soil. The British had two main fighter aircraft to rely on. They were the Hawker Hurricane and the Supermarine Spitfire. Contrary to opinion and contrary to most popular knowledge, the two planes were not equal and they were used to their best advantage for different roles. The Hurricanes took on the German bomber formations. They were a bit more sturdy. They could take a bit more damage. Yeah. So they went for the bombers. The Spitfires had a higher speed and higher agility. They were used to deal with the fighter escorts, which were mainly Messerschmitt 109s and the twin-engine 110s. Although, after the Battle of Britain, the FW-190 was a much better aircraft. Now, the 109s were more than a match for the British Spitfires. And in some cases, in the hands of an experienced German pilot, they were a lot better. Yeah. They were fuel injection. The early Spitfires were carburetor. If the early Spitfires went into a climb, 
they would misfire, suffer from fuel starvation. 109s didn't. So there was a lot. Do you think, just on that, if they had the the Fokker Wolves at the Battle of Britain, we would have been screwed? We would have had a, a, a much bigger problem because yeah. the Fokker Wolf 190 had a rotary engine, it was could much, take much more power, better. it was more powerful, it was more agile. Um, the, the good thing from our point of view is they came in too late for the Battle of Britain and Germany couldn't produce enough of them. And by that point, we'd caught up, we had the Mark Vs. Yeah, and, and we did change the, 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 uh, the Merlin engine and everything else. The turnaround and rearm time, which is rearming and refueling after, a, after landing for a Spitfire, was 26 minutes. The Hurricane, nine minutes. Hmm. Which increased the Hurricane's yeah, efficiency and better. effectiveness. is a lot better. Add this to the fact that the nearest Luftwaffe base were just less than an hour away. You can see how vital radar was yeah and they didn't have i mean they didn't have as much fuel either i mean we've got to remember the british only had an hour in the air all right the germans had slightly more fuel in the tank but well if you you put drop tanks on a 109 hmm. you could stay over london for an hour yeah which is longer than a spitfire but they're slower with the extra weight so hmm Anyway, the battle for air superiority over the British skies had been going on daily for about a month before the 15th of September. Britain was losing. Yeah. There is no doubt whatsoever we were losing the Battle of Britain. The RAF was reduced to giving new pilots two weeks training before they were sticking them up in the air. And like I said, a lot of them went out and never came back from their first flight. In August the British had managed to train 260 new pilots. They were actually losing 476 pilots a month. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. 346 killed or missing in August. 120 per week, and that doesn't include the 130 that were injured. You can see why the life expectancy wasn't very long. No. Eagle Day arrives, 15th of September, 1940. This one day of dramatic aerial combat goes down in history as the day which decided the fate of a nation. The world, I would go with. Hitler had invasion barges ready in the French ports. He had the military invasion force ready to board them. And all that was needed was Goring's Luftwaffe to finish off the RAF. Yeah. Everything was ready to go. The German crews had been told the RAF was down to its last reserves. One more assault would click, clinch victory. And it's, to be honest, partially correct. 11 Group only had a total of 310 fighter planes available. And they couldn't all be deployed at the same time. The British defence system mate meant while some were actually fighting, others were making their way into the action, others would be returning, and then you had those on the ground for refuelling and rearming, and that was without those held back in reserve. So well, the 310 fighter aircraft, you ain't going to put many up in the air. No. Okay. 
in reality the RAF pilots actually engaging the German formations on this day at any one time was around 60 aircraft. And this was over the whole of the southeast of England, including London. Uh, but today would be slightly different. Today, 15th of September, 1,500 aircraft from both sides filled the skies over southeast England. Despite the numbers, the German bomber crews are going to be in for a bit of a shock. The Luftwaffe began its eighth consecutive night of bombing London soon after midnight. 13 Dornier 17 light bombers attacked the capital. Quarter past midnight, two JU-88s followed. Another 11 Heinkel 111s bombed the city again at 10 to 1 and 2 o'clock. Five more also bombed the city. This was at night. 19 people were killed and 31 injured in that particular raid, all those raids, which is not too bad. Heaviest casualties on that were when a bomb, single bomb, fell on a church in Chelsea, killed 14 and injured 26. German bombers also attacked Cardiff, Liverpool, Leicester, Ipswich. At sea, a Heinkel 115 float plane attacked and sank the Mail Sea River off of Montrose with a torpedo. Soon after that, the freighter Holland was also sunk. At 3.30 in the morning, 115s flew up the Thames estuary and dropped anti-shipping magnetic mines into the Thames. The whole of that night, 28 RAF night fighters made it into the sky. No German planes were shot down. That is the start. They had a pretty easy morning then, the Germans, by it's the sound of it. still not considered to be Eagle Day. This isn't the night time. This isn't the day. Well, I mean, it's gone past midnight. Yeah. <laughs> But the Germans planned two daylight raids for the day. Targets are going to be purely military. And the two targets. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill were Battersea Railway Station, which was a junction point for the British military, transports to the coast and everything else, and the London Docks. Yeah, that's in East London. They've already mined the Thames now. Yeah. So they were going to go for the London Docks, the Thames Estuary, and the warehouses. So began Sunday the 15th of September 1940 and the 13 hours that realistically will determine the fate of Great Britain. Although the night raids occurred after midnight and technically also happened on the 15th, they do not constitute part of the day which records say starts just after 6.30 in the morning. Right, okay, fair enough. Dawn begins in a country that's expecting an invasion and had been for over three months. At 6.30 in the morning, one squadron from each group was brought up to readiness. Basically, that means your engines are running, you're on the ground, pilot is in the aircraft. Yeah. At 8 o'clock, a lone German bomber flies west down the English Channel. It stays over the sea. The aircraft is on a reporting mission for weather, and it's purposely staying out of the range of British fighters. But it was seen and monitored by radar. Eventually, it strays into an area that the RAF could uh, intercept it. So two hurricanes were dispatched from Group 10, which is the southwest of England, from RAF Exeter. It's two hurricanes. They located the bomber and commenced an attack. The plane was shot down and crashed into the sea. The German air-sea rescue aircraft that was sent out found the wreckage, but no survivors. They are the first casualties of the day. Okay. So we struck first. We did. Yeah. A number of JU-88s flew over England on the southeast of England anyway, at very high altitude for reconnaissance purposes. Now, although Spitfires could have reached that height and intercept them, it would have been difficult. Yeah. It was at the maximum height that the Spitfires could reach. So these planes were not engaged. Given the fact the Germans now think, hello, they're still not they still haven't got any aircraft. Yeah. At 10 o'clock, the large table map in the centre of Fighter Command, RAF Uxbridge, only showed a few single enemy reconnaissance aircraft. The ladies of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force stood by with their little sticks and little blocks of wood. I don't know if you've seen the pictures. Yeah, obviously we record this first, but that's one of the pictures I was going to put up for Facebook. So if you've seen it on Facebook, you'll you'll know what it is. Now, these blocks were moved about the map of southern England, or England and Great Britain. 
and they would show enemy numbers their height and by the position of of the block their location correspondingly the intercepting RAF squadrons would also have their own little block yeah so it was here that the British air defences were being coordinated 15th of September was going to be no different to any other day in the Battle of Britain when it started history would later disagree with that yeah (laughs) the German planes began to take off from their airfields around 10 past 10 and this is the day that Winston Churchill decides he's going to visit fighter command really so he turns up at RAF Uxbridge morale boost and he's there from the beginning radar picked up the first German formations as they assembled at their rendezvous points over France they were immediately identified as hostile aircraft and the wooden blocks started to be pushed towards the English Channel now although radar picked up the German aircraft it couldn't tell the difference between fighters and bombers now this is a problem or it was a problem for the control room because it could be a trap If the formations were fighters being sent ahead of the bombers to draw out and clear the way, then a direct confrontation had to be avoided because the RAF would lose too many planes and pilots and that would leave the following bombers free to cause any devastation that they could. But if the formations were actually bombers, then the RAF needed to attack in force and shoot down as many as possible before they even reached the target get it wrong result is defeat timing is crucial on one hand the RAF planes have got to scramble into the air as early as possible to allow enough time to get into an attack position but then they had to avoid being scrambled too early and risk running out of fuel before they even met the Germans so timing is crucial and today was a big raid five past 11 120 to 150 german aircraft reached calais and based on their direction and previous raids the target appeared to be london again yeah the decision had to be made very quickly every second delay resulted in the enemy's advance towards their target time ran out the man in command of the defense control room made the call air vice marshal keith park gave the order wing commander lord wilby de brook scrambled nine squadrons into the air at 11:15. he was the one that took the gamble he gambled that the incoming planes were the main bomber force and so he sent nine squadrons he also sent word to RAF Northolt, RAF Kenley and RAF Debden to have their aircraft ready to stand by, ready for deployment. If the target was going to be London as they expected, the Germans would follow the estuary right up to it. It's not difficult to find. You follow the Thames. Yeah. The squadrons already deployed would attack the Germans as they made their way upriver. 
But that's as they were coming in. The capital still need defending. So those three airfields were the ones that were going to do the defending. Park now took one of the biggest gambles of his career. Possibly the biggest gamble in the whole of the Second World War. At 11.20, he ordered RAF Hornchurch, RAF Northweald and 10 groups RAF Middlewallop into the air. He now had two squadrons over Canterbury, four over Biggin Hill and Maidstone, and a backup of two squadrons over Chelmsford. RAF Duxford and Stanmore were also scrambled. One led by one of your previous podcasts, Douglas Bader. The man with one leg. Quality episode, that. You have to go back and listen to that. These 56 aircraft were airborne by 11.20. As the German aircraft crossed the British Channel... Oh, the British Channel? It's the English Channel, isn't it? <laughs> Don't annoy the, the, uh, the Scottish. <laughs> no. As the German aircraft crossed the British coast, radar information gave way to the Observer Corps. Now, once over British soil, they became the only means of monitoring the Germans' progress. They were, in fact, a civil defence organisation organised in 1925 for visual detection, identification, tracking and reporting of aircraft, general aircraft, over Great Britain. And they were all volunteers. They were armed with a pair of binoculars, a little book of silhouettes of aircraft identification, a means of working out their altitude and a telephone. That's it. That's all they had. little box on the side of the... (laughs) Yeah. But it's down to them now. But they're important. (laughs) Massively. The German planes crossed the coastline at 11.36 at a place called Folkestone. There were two flights of Messerschmitt 109 fighters and one flight of Dornier 17s, the bombers. Half the fighters flew well above the bombers. The other half flew within the bomber formation. All the aircraft had to travel at the speed of the bombers, so the fighters were reduced on their maximum yeah. pressure. They, they, they were However, a further flight of 109s had taken off after this initial force, and they were expected to overtake the initial group. They were also equipped with 550-pound bombs, and they were expected to attack London first. So they were going to go past an attack. Yeah. And then... You've now got three lots of fighters protecting the bombers. In total, there was about 145 German aircraft. Radar picked up the second lot of 109s and misinterpreted them as the major force. Determined to meet this second wave... Uxbridge scrambled six more squadrons. Ooh. The German crews were informed that the RAF doubt were down to their last 70 fighters. In reality, the oncoming forces of 145 German bombers and fighters were about to make contact with 245 Spitfires and Hurricanes. The German planes were flying in close formation. The RAF were spread out over hundreds of square miles. 
And to be honest, in a lot of cases, they weren't even close enough to see other British aircraft. Despite the numbers, the RAF was spread extremely thin. The RAF made contact with incoming Germans at 11.50. Being at 25,000 feet, they were 3,000 feet above the bomber 109 upper protection units. Okay. So the German upper protection units were at 22,000 feet. Spitfires and Hurricanes come in at 25,000. The Spitfires came out of the sun and took the German fighters by complete surprise. Four or five 109s were hit, but the rest regrouped and they prevented the RAF from getting to the bombers. Another squadron of Spitfires arrived and a major dogfight ensued between the two sets of fighters. While the top cover of German fighters were engaged, 23 RAF Hurricanes attacked the bombers head-on at the same altitude as the bombers. The German fighters that were flying within the German bomber formation then became a factor. Two of the Hurricanes were shot down, no German aircraft lost. One Hurricane was lost when it collided with a 109. So we've now got three to one. While the German fighters were engaged, the RAF were all over them. It was all over Kent. Half of the RAF's fighters had yet to arrive in the area. So although we had 200 and something aircraft, half of them hadn't even got there yet. Wow. The bombers continued on without any loss, but now without any fighter cover. The gamble of attacking the enemy all along its route up the Thames then began to pay off because the, it made escorting fighters use up their valuable fuel for fighting. So the 109s are now using a lot more fuel because they're having to fight. At 12.07, some of the fighters had to depart or they wouldn't have enough fuel to get back to, to France, which left the bombers on their own. Remember, we hadn't shot a bomber down. Not yet. The bombers reached Lewisham and outskirts of London. The RAF continued to press home attacks on the German formations. One of the Dornier bombers was brought down and it crashed into Victoria Station. But not before it jettisoned some of its bombs. And guess where they landed? Yes. The, the big house. Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace. Landed in the grounds of Buckingham Palace. The king was not amused. <laughs> no, I bet he wasn't. The hurricane that had deliberately rammed it because the hurricane had run out of ammunition uh, actually crashed into the grounds of the king's residence. The RAF pilot had bailed out and he actually survived. Unfortunately, the German pilot of the bomber also bailed out, but he got attacked by civilians on the ground and he didn't make it. He died from his injuries. The RAF accounted for five more downed and a further four badly damaged when the German aircraft turned for home. 
the remainder of the bombers hit their target and then went back to France because the RAF were now landing and refueling. So their return trip was un unopposed. The RAF pilots claimed that 81 German bombers were shot down. The actual fact? Six. <laughs> okay. RAF Fighter Command lost, for this part of the raid, 13 aircraft shot down. Many more were so damaged that they couldn't fly again. This is a victory for the Luftwaffe. Yeah, I was going to say that's. The Germans looked like they were going to they're going to win. Despite the efforts of fighter command, we were losing too many pilots. Yeah. It's pure and simple, isn't it? If you've not got the men to fly the planes, it doesn't matter how many you put up. As the first wave of German aircraft were landing, the second wave was actually taking off. And this raid was going to be much bigger. It was actually three waves in succession and totaled 450 aircraft. Just three times bigger than what they sent the first time. This raid was picked up by radar quarter to two in the afternoon, just 15 minutes before it hit the French coast. Despite some of the planes still having to be refuelled and rearmed, Fighter Command sent them all up again. The strain on the RAF was relentless. It was showing. For some pilots, this will be their fourth or fifth combat of the day, and it's only two o'clock in the afternoon. By 28 minutes past two, 246 British fighter aircraft were again in the air from bases all over southern England. And they were there to face this new raid. Not all of them would make it. In fact, a large number never actually encountered German aircraft. Is that because of the distance? Because of the distance and the vast amount of area the actual battle was taking over. Uh, took took. The British aircraft were outnumbered two to one. But there were three German fighters for every two British fighters. And some of these units had now been ordered to attack British fighters. Right, so they weren't just protecting it. They weren't they told were. to protect the bombers, they were told to go for the British fighters. At 25 to 3, Park and Churchill were in the operations room watching the battle unfold at Uxbridge. The Prime Minister asked a very, very simple question. What reserves are available if the enemy should reach London? None. Hmm. Yeah. Every single British fighter plane was airborne. There's nothing left. By half past two, some of the RAF planes are short on fuel again and short of ammunition. They are forced to land. By the time the German formation comes into the Thames estuary, there are only 186 Spitfires and Hurricanes in the air to meet them. As each squadron encountered German planes, the attack commenced. The whole of the southeast of England was a battlefield which spread over 5,000 square miles. 
some RAF squadrons never even saw a German plane before they were recalled for refuelling. The battle was so really spread out. On occasions, on several occasions, a fighter would engage another one only to find at the end of the engagement they're the only aircraft in the sky. At half past, well, 29 minutes to three, the bomber force reaches London. Now here, they got met with substantial anti-aircraft fire from the ground. And 19 squadrons, totalling 186 RAF aircraft, had still not got to London. So it's just the anti-aircraft that's shooting them. I mean, although it was the tail end of summer, it wasn't all blue skies. There's a substantial amount of low cloud, um, and pre- that prevented coordinating attacks on uh, being successful. The defenders, the RAF, would have loved it to be clear blue sky, but it wasn't. The bomber force got to the east docks in London on the Thames with very few losses. Fighter Command did what it could. Uh, but the odds are overwhelming. The German fighters that were in the bomber formation had been ordered to remain with the bombers, so they were actually unable to chase the RAF. So it just left the Luftwaffe's hunter units who could engage the, the, the British fighters. The battle became a confusing mess of combat. 20 to 3, the main formation over 100 undamaged bombers reached the London docks, dropped their bombs, a substantial number of which fell in the London Borough of West Ham, actually. <laughs> I won't say what my opinion of West Ham is. No, I'd rather you, I'd rather you didn't. For those but, um, of you who don't know, that's my football team. So. But, um, yeah, it's. it's and and Barack Obama's. Yeah. Um,. Other targets were attacked, but most of them were around that area. The RAF just attacked everything and anything. Although the RAF pilots claimed far more enemy planes shot down than actually were, um, they they claimed on this occasion 77, 77 bombers, 29 fighters. They were actually 21 bombers. <laughs> Loads damaged, uh, and only 12 fighters. Hmm. But the RAF had lost 15 fighters. So, we'd actually come out on top. Well, yeah, I mean, we have, but statistically it was still worse. It was. Numbers-wise, it's better, but statistically we lost a bigger percentage Mm -hmm. than... The day, though, proved to the Germans that the RAF were far from defeated and not down to their last few planes. Yeah. That would have been a big shock because all their propaganda, all their intelligence. Another German wave of bombers took off for the southeast of England at 20 to 6 in the evening. They actually managed to bomb the Spitfire factory at Southampton, and did not lose a single aircraft. Hmm. Small minor raids carried out, continued throughout the evening. But in total, during that day, Germany actually lost 
61 aircraft shot down. Yeah. The RAF lost 31. By the end of the day, German command realised that British fighter command was far from finished, and their continued daylight raids would only result in a loss of more men and machines. Two days later, 17th of September, Hitler cancelled Operation Sea Line. The threat of invasion was over. Britain was safe. Germany's failure to defeat the RAF and secure control over the skies of southern England made invasion impossible. The British victory in the Battle of Britain was decisive. It was defensive. But we didn't lose. So Britain secured one of its most significant victories of the Second World War and it was able to stay in the war and fight another day. Yeah, and it's it, I mean what a what an awesome story. And what I find very very interesting about it um is Winston Churchill did a very famous speech around 1944 45 um where he said uh Britain didn't win a battle until El Alamein and after El Alamein we didn't lose a battle well El Alamein was 1942 so basically this was the only victory the only sense of winning that Britain saw from 1939 to 1942 we were losing on every single front well technically we lost this one but we gave them such a scare scare that they stopped um, attacking that. I mean, you're talking about the Battle of Britain. At the start of the Battle of Britain, the uh, the Luftwaffe had, well, so many aircraft. At the end of the Battle of Britain, the Germans had lost 1,918 aircraft for a loss of 2,662 airmen. Wow. That's fighting over over Great Britain. The British, well, we had 1,012 aircraft. Shot down. No, 1,000, yeah, shot down. At a loss of 500 and 37 airmen that is over 50 percent of our airmen lost mm. that's, a, that's a lot it's um yeah i mean although lot. the war continued over britain for several more weeks british air defenses has held off the biggest and the best that the luftwaffe had hence the 15th of september is eagle day battle of britain day yeah and it's the day where we basically told the Germans to do one. And uh, well, you're stopping here. Yeah, you yeah. go no further. Yeah, and it was it was probably a, a massive. Well, not probably. It was definitely a massive morale boost. It was. Um, I, I, I would I would assume that it would would have been as devastating in Germany as it was prosperous in England. Oh yeah. Definitely. I mean, um, I mean, Goering, well known for his uh, eccentricity. You know, he's very 
flamboyant. If you ever seen his suits, you know, got multicolored suits and everything. You know, he was, but he was, he was a World War One war hero. He was one of the most famous men in Germany at the time. Not just the leader of the Luftwaffe, he was a war hero from the First World War. So when he turned around and said, "We're going to do this. This is what's going to happen." the whole of Germany would have agreed with him. Do you know what I mean? There would have been this sense of this is going to happen. It's going to, we are going to win this. Um, and obviously, yeah, yeah, that, that would have been, I would have said as devastating as anything, because you, you're taking, basically they were taking the word of, uh, a man who they, they believed. Oh yeah. Undoubtedly. And again, you know, it just shows, we, you know, as a as a nation, we, we, you know, we said it earlier. Britain just don't give up. We just there's just this mentality in this country where it's like, well, we don't actually know when we're beaten. We'll just carry on, even if we are beaten, we'll still carry on. You know, you look oh. at 1776, for example. You know, we we were beaten, we were knocked down, and then 20 years later, we burnt down their White House. Yeah, you know, think- we just don't. It's just that mentality of never giving up. 1776, it was just one of those things. To be honest, we could not be bothered. No. We had other things to do. <laughs> you know, and it was one of those... The king was washing yeah. his hair that day. That <laughs> <laughs> No. No, but the, the end result... I mean, we. to be honest, it might be an interesting take on the 1776... Um, well, War of Independence, I suppose you'd call it, but... The uh, the minor skirmish over the pond. Yeah, um, it might be worth doing that from our point of view, or well, from the British point of view, not our personal point of view. Because to be honest, it was a nothing. Yeah, it was just. Wasn't. It's a, it's a footnote in history from our point of view. We had far bigger things to deal with at well, the time. At the time, you had the uh, revolt in India that was going on, and India was far more prosperous to the British Empire than well, it's silks and spices. Yeah, than the yeah. Americas. So, but I mean, you know, but. That that attitude is what what I'm getting at. The the British just they they weren't going to give up and and they threw everything at this. Um, oh yeah, I mean if the Germans had sent a fourth wave, yeah, that's it. We we had nothing left. No, and it, it was it was all all or nothing. They threw everything at it, and it worked. It could equally have backfired, and we'd now be speaking German. I because you can that. guarantee. That if we had lost that, the Americans wouldn't have come in into the Europe war. They had no reason to. No, and you know you've got. And I always say this: you've got to remember uh, the the Second World War. I mean, Ger- Germany, not sorry, not Germany. America is at the time, and I believe now was basically it's, it's a nation of immigrants. Um, you know, every apart from the Native Americans, everybody's moved there from Europe, and the three countries that people moved from majority to America were Italy, Germany and Ireland. Now Ireland was neutral during the Second World War because they'd already got involved in the first and didn't want to get involved in the second, which I kind of agree with because the way the British treated them. The Germans, well, the German natives in America would have wanted to go in on the German side and the Italians were fighting on the German side. So Hmm. the consensus in America would have been wildly... Well, even the American ambassador to the UK 
told the British government, give up. Yeah. You can't win. You cannot beat the Germans. No. No, and it's, it's amazing. And, you know, so... Had yeah. the Japanese not have been so stupid, we, I think... Yeah, we, we would have been... Well, like I said right at the beginning, we were on our own. Yeah, and it was... And, the, you know, you've got to remember as well, in the, the First World War, there was no call from America. Americans did not want to get involved in the First World well, War. Well, quite rightly, it wasn't their no, war. No, and then when they did get involved and lost thousands of men... Because they sent untrained troops over and yeah. then, yeah... Yeah. And they should never, but they, they again, they should never have got involved in the First World War. There was no call for them to get involved. I mean, obviously, from our point of view, we wanted them to get involved, but they but had they, no reason They had to. no reason to, yeah. no. So the no. consensus in America to get involved in another one was like, nah, sod you, you deal with your own problems. Well, yeah, um, quite rightly. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, had had Hitler have managed to, to cross, what, you know, it's just it's crazy. I mean, but these things happen throughout history. I mean, there's so many times in history that something's on a knife edge and, and it just teeters one way and it's it would have been a completely I mean, different story. Had had we lost this and the Germans had managed to get across the channel, I don't think they would have had an, as easy a time as they did with the French. I mean, they had the French resistance and they had all the the bits going on you know they weren't for the french didn't no. lay back and and sort of no but you the, know. the french weren't but prepared for over it. here you'd have virtually the whole of the country against them on and on on a on a on a basic thing it wouldn't be soldiers fighting soldiers no it would be the indigenous population doing little things you know sabotaging the trains Preventing things from working, much so, like the Vietnamese did in, yeah, yeah, um, and and you can't if you can't identify who you're fighting against, yeah, you that, can't win, and that's why I mean the French resistance was extremely successful. Oh yes, um, you know, and 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 you you got to remember at the time in France, for example, I mean, as the Germans came in. The French, the the British were going into France at the same time, and the Germans cut off that supply line from the British helping the French, and there was no warning for it, and they just rolled straight into Paris because there was they were met with no opposition. Whereas, if they were to come over to Britain, they have to get over that channel, and we've got twenty two miles of blasting at German ships and the Royal Navy. Yeah, so they it wouldn't have it certainly would not have been as easy as it. It would have been for the fray, yeah. You know, so you know, there, there's a lot of information on this. The 13 hours that saved Britain, yeah, amazing. Um, you know, it's a fantastic part of history, and and like I said, the Battle of Britain is is commemorated year in year out in this country. Um, you'll still see it now. I mean, what are we nearly 90 years on, and you can still see the Spitfires going up, or 80 years on. Sorry. And the Spitfires still go up every year. The Hurricanes, the the Lancaster Bombers, um, they we have what maybe ten shows a year where they're out. Yeah, easily. Um, I mean, I, I've looked at. I looked at. You can actually go to. You mentioned it, RAF Biggin Hill, but you can actually go to Biggin Hill. It's in Croydon, just outside of Croydon, and you can fly in a Spitfire. They're too, they've got um, adapted two seater Spitfires now, so you can fly. Well, I'm only uh, two miles from the RAF Museum at Hendon. 
Yes. Yeah, you know, that's, that's awesome. That is that's a good day out there. Yeah, so that's it. And they've got one of the few Heinkel 111s. They've got 109s. They've got uh, an FW190. Obviously, they've got a Spitfire and a Hurricane. They've got a Flying Fortress, and they've got a Lancaster. They have. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. But it's it's awesome. But, I mean, I, I mean, I'd love to do that going up in a Spitfire, but I think it's like six thousand pounds or something for like, an, <laughs> yeah, for like yeah, a half an hour flight yeah. i'm like yeah i mean i want to do it but i'm, I'm not so mm. if anyone anyone out there listening to the show <laughs> wants to donate <laughs> he's, a, he's a millionaire or has has about six grand spare that wants to get me up in a spitfire then uh you know send send the money over i'd love to do that but um yeah, I mean, what a what a story, and and we have got uh, obviously we we started with Winston Churchill. Um, I think we've got to finish with his Winston speech. Churchill. We've got to finish with Winston Churchill. So I'm going to leave you with the voice of the greatest Briton, and I don't care what other anyone says. He was voted the greatest Briton of all time, um, and this was his one of his speeches uh, towards the end of the the Battle of Britain. The gratitude of every home in our island in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen, who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.